Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael Pond with us. You've been slicing and dicing inflation. We'll return to that here in a moment. But we're thrilled to bring you right now, not on Jobs Day, James Glassman of J.P. Morgan. Jim Glassman helping us out with Bill Gross on every Jobs Day. We drag him in before uh, Jackson Hole. Uh, Jim, I want to go to a chart that I think you first showed me. Not the unemployed, the employed in America going back to 1947 and Leon and the advent of modern macroeconomics. Up we go. Slope matters. That little green line is a decade that we all remember wistfully when we were a job creating machine and then something happened i'm sorry this is the great unspoken at jackson hole isn't it yeah and what the beauty of this chart is it tells you uh, gives you a better sense of what the true unemployment picture looks like because a lot of people dropped out of the job market when yeah. they gave up looking now, the problem is there is a demographic thing going on here also. Agreed. So as people get older, they, they are moving to retirement. But the fact is there's still about 2 million 20 and 30-year-olds who are out of the market. They're doing something else. Parents are helping. And they are slowly coming back, but it tells you there is, that's a hidden population of unemployed people. What is the level of underemployment in American society? You know, that, and that includes the people who are working part-time involuntarily. Um, it's, it's hard billions. to tell. It's, it's hard to tell. But I, I personally think the true right. unemployment measure may be like 6.5%, not the 49 Okay, there's the headline item that we're back up above 6.5%. Chair Yellen has a dual mandate as right. she speaks on Friday. Everybody's focused on Michael Pond's world of interest rates, negative rates, and that. Are you expecting to hear her say something about that 6.5% Glassman statistic? You know, they've been saying this all along. They've been, they've been telling you that they understand that the official unemployment rate doesn't capture the whole picture. The fact is, though, we are making progress, and um, it, that doesn't mean you keep rates at zero forever. That's the problem. Uh, it looks like the labor market is improving slowly, and I think if the Fed can slowly work its way back to normal, we're going to have a very good chance of extending this eight-year expansion into something much longer. Um, Jim, you're saying the true jobless rate in the U.S. is about 6.5%. Yesterday we were talking about robots and the fact that there are so many robots yeah. that will actually take over our jobs. So yeah. what will be the ideal or the, the best in class for unemployment when we see the fourth revolution really coming into play? Well, you know, those are all things that have been going on for a couple centuries, right? And the fact is that that process doesn't happen overnight, and it does create new job opportunities. Uh, it frees up a lot of useless work that we do, and it does create other opportunities. So that's a longer-running issue, and it doesn't tell you. Right. It's hard to know what kind of unemployment comes out of that. If policy is put up in the right place, uh, I, I personally think the economy has a way of achieving full employment absent a crisis, right. and the Federal Reserve can help make that happen. So personally, I think we all, this is why the Fed has a mandate of full employment, 2% inflation. Right. Um, if we can't get there because of robots and AI, then right. uh, well, they'll, they'll work to make that happen. 
But is full employment, does it automatically assume that wages have to go up? Or can you have full employment and absolutely no wage growth? No, I mean, if you if you have full employment, you would expect that workers are in better position to bargain. And uh, you, you would expect that wage trends would try to match what's going on with productivity. So it doesn't, right. doesn't guarantee what pace of what pace of wage trends you get. But, uh, and that's part of the Fed's job, is to try to figure out how you, you can get to full employment and have inflation too low. And that's why they talk about overheating somewhat. But I think there's a pretty good chance in the U.S. that we're working our way back toward that 2% inflation that the Fed is looking for. And that means more normal wage trends coming. And actually, actually we're seeing that, right? We've had 2% wage inflation we are a little for a bit. while. And now it's starting to pick up a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But is the linkage actually broken because of productivity and the other factors that you're talking about? You know, I don't, I don't think so. We don't, first of all, we don't really know what's going on with productivity. But over time, you would expect that real wages should pretty much match the growth in labor productivity. That hasn't really happened for a while, but I think it's because there's a lot going on in the economy that's disrupted things, globalization, <clears throat> technology. Well, but I think you, over time, you would expect that to happen. Let's bring in Michael Pond, Barclays Capital. Michael, you were mentioning off the, uh, uh, the, the show here. Uh, September or never, this idea of it's a Fed that better get it in gear now. Can they do that with Jim Glassman's scenario? Of a, of a grinding, better American labor economy? Well, Jim mentioned that, you know, if, if they don't go in September, then, then maybe you have to, to actually overheat the economy uh, to get inflation up. And that's exactly the theory behind our September or never. Either they go in September because the job market's fine and inflation will go up eventually, or they say, you know what, we need to overheat this economy in order to get inflation up because of globalization, because of technology. Okay, but because Jim, of this, low is, this is absolutely critical. If they go in September, does it knock X thousand off non-farm payrolls? I don't see the linkage. No, I is think, it there? No, it's it's very loose. Uh, but I think I think the thing to remember: we wouldn't be talking about the Fed. There, there, there'd be no reason for the Fed to raise rates based on what's going on in the economy. The problem is the rates are extremely low, and what we worry about is having rates near zero, creating financial imbalances that we're going to find out about later. That's what you want to avoid, because that's been, that's been the kind of thing that has thrown us off course in the last several cycles. Right, but actually, Jim, the problem is that if you wait too long, that you may have to then rise very quickly. That's right? the problem. And, and so what's That's more, the problem. Right, but so what's more damaging, to wait a little bit too long um, and actually risk than having to go too, too steep in it, raising interest rates or actually taking your sweet time and or not taking your sweet time and then having to reverse course. Yeah, that's been the Fed's choices, right? And I think they opted for start early and go slowly, except a few things got in the way here. But I really think it's more disruptive if you wait until it's obvious and then you go very rapidly. I mean, we saw we got a taste of this actually back in 1995. Exactly. When, when the Fed moved very quickly, the Mexican crisis was born out of that. Right. And so I, I think Ooh. the problem with moving very quickly when the market is very illiquid is is can be challenging and i think for the fed right now starting to normalize policy is a is yeah. perfect okay. timing because everybody else is still in the in an easing mode francine let me bring this up right now get over to the chart anthony i'm doing this in real time folks we're ripping up the script big time here here's 1994 1995 and did i hear you just say uh jim glassman that the mexican crisis came out of that lift in rates, 94 I think, on? I think there's a good chance of that, because if you remember, when the Fed started to raise very gradually, what happened? Bond yields around the world rose about 300 basis points. That's it was brilliant. very disruptive. Francine? 
Yeah, I wanted to go back to, to Michael, actually, because there's something that Jim said, which um, I've been reading about, but actually really struck me when you said it's dangerous in a liquid market. Michael, do you agree we sometimes underestimate or we don't look deeply at the factors and play within the markets that the Fed has to deal with? Well, one of the things that clearly came out of the, the minutes from the last FOMC meeting uh, was that they think they actually have uh, time if inflation picks up. And that's sort of a, a part of the rethink uh, of the monetary policy policy framework that will happen this weekend at Jackson Hole uh, of, you know, where is the Phillips curve? Where is the, the kink in the Phillips curve? And, and how <laughs> flat is it? So the, do they need to really overheat the economy in order to hit their right. inflation objective? We go to Jim Glassman, who was with A.W. Phillips at LSE when he figured this out. I'm kidding. That was a few, <laughs> a few years before you and uh, me. But the Phillips curve was a mechanical machine at the London School of Economics yeah. that tried to game this. Is it dated? Well, economists differ on this, right? If you yeah. Janet, Janet Yellen's view of this is the Phillips curve is pretty flat, so you don't get much bang out of unemployment. It's more inflation expectations than anchor. Bob Gordon, though, thinks that he doesn't buy that. He thinks that the unemployment gap is much more significant. In other words, if unemployment is about a percentage okay. point above, you get some disinflation. Well, in this brilliant conversation of a dynamic finance guy and an old-line economist, how closely, Michael Ponder, your world's linked right now, or are they so discreet because of our great bond distortion. I, I think they're, they're pretty closely linked. And, and to me, the key in all it is, is inflation expectations. So you, you mentioned that inflation expectations really need to, to be anchored in order for Fed policy to work here. We think they're starting right. to, to move lower. Joining Michael McKee and me right now, Michael Pond, who's been with us. We've been talking about expectations of inflation. Michael Pond, how far out do our expectations go? I see two-year, one-year, five-year. Is there even 10-year inflation expectations? Well, the, the Treasury issues 30-year tips, so we can actually uh, measure those against 30-year nominals and get inflation <coughs> expectations or at least inflation compensation uh, within nominal bonds out to the 30-year point. Um, and we can break those up into individual years. So, this is brilliant. Very critically, when we talk about the public's expectations, what you're really talking about is the compensation within any yield that you get. Right. So it's not just pure inflation expectations. It's also uh, inflation risk premium. So you might think that inflation is going to come in at 2%, uh, but your conviction around that uh, will drive how much you're willing to pay uh, for a nominal bond versus uh, locking in a guaranteed real rate. So you might have a baseline view of 2%, but you might be worried that you might get 4%, 6% inflation and be willing to pay a little bit extra for the certainty of a real rate in tips because of that. Right now, uh, the market's the other way, where mm -hmm. investors may have may, may still, we think it's declining, <coughs> but may still have a view that the Fed's going to be right, right, but basically saying, well, look, if they're wrong, they're going to be wrong that inflation right. comes in too low Let's instead. Let's bring in my colleague Michael McKee in Emigrant, Montana. What, how much conviction can you have over 30 years, Michael? 30 years ago, inflation was running at 14%, 12 to 14% of the United States, and look how much that has changed. I get why you would buy a nominal bond uh, for duration purposes, but why would you buy a TIPS 30-year? 
Because right now the market is priced for inflation to come in at 1.5%, uh, basically over the next year, the year after that, the five years after that, and the 30 years after that. And so you might think, well, eventually, inflation might be low now, uh, we might not be at full employment yet, but eventually uh, the Fed gets it right and inflation moves higher. So you want to capture uh, that very cheap inflation insurance that the market is offering you. I mean, I mean, you look at the, the, the cheap insurance that's out there. The, I guess things are so messed up. I'm going to ask you a question from another time and place, Michael, when we were less gray. Where is the belly of the curve right now? Is it still five to seven or are things so messed up that there's either A, no belly or it's at a new location? When I refer to the belly, I usually refer it to just put it from a pure maturity perspective around right. the, the seven year point. So the five to so 10 year sector moved in the great distortion. But importantly, the, the belly, the curve, to some extent, represents some curvature. Right. And so um, given that the curve is has flattened, uh, you know, that that's that's less uh, pronounced. The, the belly, if you will, the curvature is less pronounced when the curve is, is flatter. It's also well, a, a, a risk premium idea. And, and we think risk premium here, particularly right. inflation risk premium, <clears throat> is quite low. Yeah. Michael, well, I was going to say the, the term premium is near record lows. That has to scare you, doesn't it, that um, maybe we go too far in this? There's too many people in one trade and nobody taking the other side. Well, the, the Fed has dismissed the, the low level of break-evens in part because they think they have declined uh, because a decline in inflation risk premium. We don't dispute that, uh, but we think the Fed should be worried about low inflation risk premium because, again, it says that is the market is saying if the Fed's wrong, it's going to be wrong to the downside pretty, pretty uh, significantly for a long period of time. We think the Fed should be more worried about that and not complacent with inflation risk premium coming down. Well, that would suggest you think the Fed should raise rates then, right? Well, uh, I'm not saying that. We, we do expect them. Our baseline is for them to go in September. But we think the outlook is essentially September or never. Either they go in September because the, they're, they're focused right. on the employment side of it, their, their mandate, or they start to focus on the inflation side, and that leads to them to, to be on hold for a longer period of time. Then to work back into more the economics of Michael Pond, which inflation rate matters now? Michael McKee and I have done a lot of work on service sector, medical, OER, owner's equivalent rent, other measures, Cleveland CPI, which are elevated to some extent, and then these other measures, which our audience just feels is nuts, say no, no, no. Which is it? You can stop right there when it comes to the Fed because none of those matter. None what, of them matter. What, what matters to them is their view of the underlying trend in inflation, not where it is right now. So that would be, you know, what's driving CPI lower? Well, it's medical this month. They don't care about that. They care about what's going to be driving it over the next three, four years. And if it's just medical, well, then they're fine with it. If it's just OER, they can ignore it. Uh, so they think about the, their inflation forecasting model is really a labor-driven uh, model, slack-driven model. So I've always said that really they only have, in general, in most cases, they have one mandate, and it's on the labor market. And it's, that's because even if they just had an inflation mandate, their view of inflation would be driven by the labor market. Do you think their models are wrong? 
Well, they're coming to the conclusion that perhaps the Phillips curve looks a little bit different than it did 10 years ago. Perhaps it's, it's quite a bit flatter. Perhaps Nehru is, is quite a bit lower. Um, and so the same models that they were using 10 years ago, the coefficients uh, may have changed significantly, and, and they need to rethink policy as a yep. result. I mean, that speaks to the, uh, not dissenters, but people curious about theory in terms of Bullard of St. Louis and Williams of San Francisco as well. Uh, Michael Pond with us from Barclays Capital. Michael, you're in the bond world. You're capturing a coupon, nominal and real, it's next to nothing. And everybody, every weekend writes, go to cash. The gloom out there is unbelievable. All sorts of professional investors saying, this is terrible. The world's coming to an end. Go to cash, not as an equity guy, but as a bond guy. How do you respond to go to cash? Well, I think the the, I think the investment world, the the Fed, is also trying to fend off the the bears, uh, if you will, just as uh, Michael McKee is out there, um, and and we think that you know you, you, there there are pockets of investment opportunities out there. We think, for example, the the front end of the the break even curve uh, is is quite cheap relative to expected in inflation, but you really have to pick your spots. The, the, there aren't clear trends in the market anymore, so you have to play the, the, the ranges um, and, and look for opportunities on a short-term basis because those trends just aren't in place. Well, what would you say is an opportunity right now? Um, you know, and how long a time frame do you view an opportunity? Is this short-term get in and get out? Well, again, it, 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 we don't make um, uh, specific uh, recommendations uh, in, a, in a public forum like this because of regulation. But we, again, we do think that uh, you know, inflation in general is priced quite low here. Uh, in, uh, CPI inflation on a core CPI basis is at 2.2%. The market is priced for inflation to come in at 1.5%, basically forever, uh, as we talked about earlier in the show. Um, so that is, is both a short-term and a long-term opportunity from an asset class perspective. What about a dur uh, the duration of your uh, opportunity? Uh, would you be buying 30 years at this point? Uh, are they a good enough value? Uh, maybe do you allocate a small portion to something that long in maturity? Or do you want to look at the shorter end and just be nimble and react to what the Fed is doing? Well, when you say 30-year, I, I think it's important to, I assume you mean 30-year nominal, I think it's important to think about uh, the, the makeup of that between uh, its real and inflation uh, component. Uh, term premium is, is quite low here, and over time, as volatility comes back in the market, um, that, that's likely to, to rise. Inflation is priced quite low, so that's likely to rise, but real yields are quite low here by historical standards, uh, but importantly, could go lower still uh, if the, the Fed comes out of Jackson Hole rethinking monetary right. policy, that they actually need to be easier uh, than they have been given a low productivity world. How do, to our, to our listeners who are desperate for yield, this is not a funny issue. You know, they're looking at dividend growth. I get that. But if I look at BAA 10-year spreads, they're, they're almost okay do you wake up at Barclays every day and say full faith and credit is so distorted, your world, Michael Pond, that you have to shift to a corporate world for yield? Well, that's exactly how QE is supposed to work. 
so monetary policy uh, essentially wasn't being wasn't all that effective to, through the normal lending channel, and so the Fed, in large part, embarked on quantitative easing, uh, buying of Treasuries, pushing longer yields down to make them unattractive and to encourage investors to move out the risk spectrum. Yeah. So that you know, it, it, it was by design. It's not just okay. random here. This has been great. Michael Pont, thank you so much for coming in. That was great with Jim Glassman. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Here's the difference, folks. Michael McKee has been exceptionally brave this morning, getting up at the crack of 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. or whatever in Montana. Blanche Flower said, no, I'm not getting up that early. That's what David <laughs> exactly. Blanche Flower said. And the reason, Mike, is Blanche Flower has black bear in his backyard outside scenic <laughs> Dartmouth College. He knows the risk of Grizz. He lives it firsthand in New Hampshire. Every day. Every, Every day. day. And, he's, and, and he has risked his life to come join us here out at Hubbard's Yellowstone Lodge, where uh, we are at Camp Kotak West, David Kotak's a gathering of Fed officials and, and economists uh, ahead of the Fed meeting down in Jackson Hole later this week. Uh, obviously, um, as you can tell from his accent, uh, Mr. Blanchflower has... I don't has, have an accent. Has, you guys are the ones with accents, <laughs> not has, me. Has a rooting interest in what is happening in the United or maybe not so United <laughs> Kingdom exactly. these days. Uh, we had a very long discussion last night uh, centered around the idea that uh, the Brits voted to leave the EU. Disaster was predicted, and the numbers have not uh, shown a disaster yet. But, uh, Danny, your argument is uh, just you wait. Well, these are very early days, but uh, if we look back to 2008, as we went into recession, the data that actually looked really bad around April 2008 were business and consumer confidence. And boy, are there a lot of similarities. They are not looking good at all. Uh, business confidence down, consumer confidence down, uh, and all the surveys asking employers, what are you planning to do to investment and to employment? Uh, well, I suppose this word's a bit much, but apocalyptic would be the right word. The Bank of England agents have done a survey. Um, uh, the Institute of Directors, um, a number of companies have, have taken these kinds of surveys, uh, and they look really bad. It'll take a while to have some hard data, but we have a bit. But the answer that I would have is, this is very early days, two months in. Thankfully, the Bank of England are aware of this and have acted, but I think there's a lot of bad news coming. You, you uh, have a, an interest in this because you were on the Monetary Policy Committee uh, in 2008 when the when things went south, they went south very quickly. Is this going to be a similar speed and depth of, I mean, do we get into recession? And if so, does it, how bad does it get? Well, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure that it went, it, I, I'm not certain that uh, we, we went in very quickly. I mean, the UK went into recession in April 08, uh, and we didn't really get uh, hard evidence until later in, in the year, perhaps a few months. So I would give it probably six months 
before you really start to see some hard data sort of tanking. But the reality is we didn't know that we got into recession properly until a year later, until around June 08. So I, so I would right. say, yeah, in the next three months, we're going to see uh, hard data come. We right. started to see things like the bits of the unemployment rate suddenly jumping. And, Professor, uh, all of what you say gets attention from the optimists on Britain, including Governor King, because of how good you've done on austerity. Within that, can currency adjust and lessen or eliminate the recession risk? I certainly don't think it can. Um, I, went, I actually went to the Bank of England, uh, living in America, paid in um, pounds. And when I went there, it was 205. And when I left, it was a buck 50. Uh, so there was a big fall in the exchange rate then. Uh, that didn't really um, dissipate the, the loss. I mean, you'd argue perhaps that it, that it would have been worse without it. Um, certainly, we've seen a fall in the currency, and that's had a positive impact already on some of the retail sales figures. Um, but no, I don't think the fall in the currency is enough. Um, the Bank of England has acted, acted cutting rates, doing QE, likely to do more and try and push it down further. Um, that's the first um, arrow that they've fired, but hopefully more will come. But we have a new government and a new chancellor who I've been saying probably by now has actually found his office. <laughs> Whether we will actually get a response from that, we're going to probably talk about. But no, I, I don't think it's as deep probably as in 2008. But, but mm. for, in 2008, we didn't have a, a political crisis. So um, I don't think this is, um, these are very good days. Well, if, if that's the case, then uh, can the Bank of England stand in the ramparts and actually hold back the tide at this point? Or, um, you know, they basically, did, did Mark Carney throw the kitchen sink at it last month because he's trying to create a psychological effect because he knows policy doesn't have as strong an effect? Can't do it all. It's a starter, but the, he's basically saying, I can't do it alone. New chancellor, get your act together, act soon, because we're going to have to act again. But we can't cut rates that much. We're at half now when we started. Uh, we are here in, uh, well, it, we keep saying immigrant. It is, uh, immigrant is about 30 miles north of where we are. We're sort of on a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere in Montana, uh, looking down on Yellowstone, the Yellowstone River. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene, who is uh, fending off some bears in the studio at the moment, I think. <laughs> Danny Blanchflower is here with me, of course, professor of economics at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. You're used to being in the mountains, so this is nothing these new are, for these you. These are pretty big mountains. These are bigger mountains than you've got back in New Hampshire. And they even get more snow than we do, so I think they get big bears. Tom too. was doing the weather report from out here, and basically, um, you don't want to be here in the dead of winter. Yeah, I, I yes. heard that. It's, um, it, it, is not, it is not pleasant. Uh, we're, we're talking, uh, Danny's expertise, of course, uh, on the United Kingdom and labor policy, because uh, he was a member of the uh, Monetary Policy Committee for the Bank of England. Uh, we don't have a lot of data yet. But uh, the thing you were pointing me to are the consumer uh, and, and business confidence surveys, which are really the only July data that we have. What's come out lately that's been better than expected was for June, and the, and the vote was at the end of June. And these numbers have all collapsed. But right. in the United States, there's always a caution that survey data doesn't necessarily match up to what ends up happening with actual spending. Is it different for the U.K.? Um, I don't think it's actually different. Um, the, the problem with much of the data you've talked about was that prior to 2008, there wasn't much movement in the data. Then actually what happened very quickly is that these numbers went to the historically low levels and, and they all went together, which I think is what people have missed. 
Uh, I'm just sitting here looking at the consumer confidence data. This is a set of data published every month by the European Union. And that's a very scary number. That just collapsed in July from minus one to minus nine. And actually, that was exactly the number that this survey had in March 2008. And we know that the UK entered recession in April 2008, and these numbers collapsed through the floor. Um, and so that, that's, that is a big worry. You're right to show concerns. But if I look back, the one thing you would have known with hindsight really early in the recession was that these numbers right. really collapsed together. Looking back now with hindsight, this is what you should have looked at what is to your, know where you were. Well, I assume you're to the right of Mr. Corbyn. We can make that assumption. Professor Blanchflower, <laughs> what is your prescription for Prime Minister May? Well, I think at the moment what we need are some, some rapid action. I wrote a, a couple of columns in the Guardian newspaper in the UK in the last couple of weeks saying that the obvious thing to do was, would be to cut VAT, which is the value-added tax um, on, on goods in the UK, by 5% immediately. And the benefit of that, unlike in the US, is that you can actually act really quickly. So if the, if the, if the keen um, McKee Blanchflower um, policymaking group said, we'll cut it, you could actually in the UK cut it at midnight. Um, and that would have an immediate effect. It would actually have a very progressive effect because cutting VAT, which is a regressive tax, cut it has a pro is progressive. And six or seven months down the road, if you think things were fine and we're wrong, then you can actually remove it. The problem is that we have a new chancellor in place and we know that the previous government had absolutely no plans for what to do post-Brexit. So if you simply start to do that, you can get yourself a little more time, a little more planning. But the worry is that, um, that the fiscal authorities um, seem to be asleep. When Mike said that it was clear that Mark Carney said, I'm going to do this stuff, but you guys better do something. And it's no good doing something and saying, oh, we're going to cut corporation tax rates. Well, that's fine, but that's not going to do anything for two years. You need to do something and quickly because Carney can't do enough on his own. There's, there's only so many corporate bonds you can buy. Now, um, I just checked, Tom, and uh, where we are on top of this mountain is about 6,000 feet high, uh, and there are mountains that are much higher all around us. So let's ask Danny for the 6,000-foot view here of, of what happens uh, to the rest of the world, to the EU. A lot of predictions that Britain's exit could fracture the EU. Now everybody's looking at Italy. Uh, is this the beginning of a major change, or does Europe just keep muddling along as it always has? Well, I think traditionally when we've had referenda in Europe, what's happened is the EU has muddled along. Um, we've seen quite relatively positive PMIs out of Europe this morning. Uh, I think what we're going to see is that uh, countries are going to realize that this is quite a nasty shock. You see the UK going into recession, and people are going to be fearful of that. But I think also the, the complexity of, of a Brexit turns out to be really complicated, uh, and it's going to take a long time. So my suspicion is that um, Brexit is going to take a long time. It probably is not going to suggest to everybody else it's a great place to go to because the plans which were non-existent suddenly look kind of tough. What, mm -hmm. what are you going to do about the law? It's going to take tens of thousands of pieces of law you're going to have to change, oh. lots of trade deals you're going to have to adjust. And if you, keep, if you go down into recession suddenly, that's probably not a great signal to everybody else. And why would, why would the EU kind of <laughs> make it easy for everybody else? Yeah. So, and I think the answer as well, well is that Brexit is going to look like sort of 90% non-Brexit. And, and within that will be the search for real economic data, which we will bring you 
and particularly our team from our London uh, headquarters. Professor Blanchfire, thank you so much. A former member of the Bank of England, he is at Dartmouth College. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.